I was a, a curious little guy, and I spent a lot of time outside. I didn't really watch a lot of television. And we would go out, we'd bum around, and we'd get ourselves in those sorts of problems. And I remember on one occasion, we had these railroad ties that sort of, my dad had put along the front of our house, and he built these raised beds, and there was various plants and shrubs and whatnot in them. And I don't know why I was doing this, but for some reason, I, I noticed that one of these railroad ties was starting to deteriorate. So I thought I would get a shovel or something and I'd dig around in this thing. Again, I'm not sure why. And I found this hole and as I had my face right down in the hole, all of a sudden I see yellow and all these yellow jackets come ripping out of this nest and started stinging me. And when I was a little boy, I wasn't anaphylactic, but I was, I was very allergic to them. Like my ear would swell up this big or my hand would swell up this big. And so I remember just running down the driveway as fast as I, I could. And all I was saying was, daddy, 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 all the way to the house. I don't know what happened after that, whether my dad came out or my mom came out or my big sister came out. But I thought about that a little bit as an adult. Why was my first reaction to holler out, daddy, 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 daddy? Daddy couldn't take the pain away. Daddy really couldn't fix my problem. Why, why is it that when little children are in distress, they want to find their parents? You ever thought about that? What can their parents do? Sit them on their laps and tell them it's going to be okay. There's, there's a certain part of us that understands that when we're in distress, we should go to someone in a position of authority. Even if that person can't take our pain away. When we're around someone who's in charge, when we're around someone who's a little bit older than us, we just sort of have this notion that there's going to be some sort of comfort there. Even if our pain is not taken away, they're, they're able to comfort us just by their presence. Not necessarily by fixing our pain, but just by virtue of their presence, there is a certain measure of comfort that can descend upon us that helps to alleviate the pain, the discomfort, the trials, the tribulations and difficulties of life. Well, in this sinful world, ultimately that person is Jesus. In this sinful world, we will experience all sorts of pain, death, distress, disease, discomfort. And while ultimately there will be no pain in the eternal kingdom, this side of heaven, there is still a comfort that we can find in the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, we can now look back to millennia and then we can observe and remember what Christ did for us. We can remember his birth, his ministry, and his death and his resurrection, and we can find comfort in that. But believers, even before Christ, could do the same. We look back, they looked ahead. We believe in the promises of God to come. They believed in the prophecies of God to come. And they were able to find great comfort and hope. In the words of the prophets that told them who Jesus was and what he was going to accomplish and the peace that he would bring in the turmoil of life. Join me in 
one of those prophetic books, the book of Micah. It's found in the Old Covenant scriptures. It's among the books that we call the, the minor prophets. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. It's a small book. We're going to look at chapter 5. As you find your way to Micah chapter 5, and we're going to look at one of the prophecies that Micah offered to the people of old to encourage them and strengthen them and warn them as they looked ahead to Jesus coming. Let me just give you a little background information about Micah, because chances are you haven't been there for a while. <laughs> I'm guessing not a lot of you have been reading Micah in 2021. So just a few things to, to set, set ourselves up for our study. First of all, Micah's name is significant. Micah's name is actually a question. His name means, who is like Yahweh? The word Yahweh is the covenantal name for God. In German, it's Jehovah. In English, it's Yahweh. And this is the, the covenantal name for God through which he has revealed himself to the people of God. Yahweh. Who is like Yahweh? And in the book of Micah, that question is essentially answered by the prophecies of the prophet Micah. The God that Micah worshipped and that we worship is a God who at times scatters his people when they rebel against him. He judges nations when they rebel against him. He judges his people when they rebel against him. That's the bad news. The good news is that he faithfully regathers his covenantal people. So sometimes he disciplines us. When we've been sufficiently disciplined, he regathers us. That's the nature of our covenantal God. In Micah's time, tell me if this isn't relevant. Micah was addressing a lot of cultural issues. He was addressing rampant idolatry, even among the people of God. The people of God had set up several foreign deities that they were worshiping. He's addressing that. He was addressing a corrupt government that wasn't upholding basic categories of justice toward the people. He was addressing corrupt religious leaders that were in the religion game for their own benefit. He was also addressing a corrupt government that had a tendency to steal private property, to misuse and abuse private property. So lots of corruption going on in Israel. God's covenantal people had, had floundered and failed in many ways. But into this cultural mess, into this sin, asking the question, who is Yahweh? We encounter a God who scatters, judges, faithfully regathers his people, and we're introduced to a coming shepherd king who will restore the people from their sin, a Messiah. A Messiah who will restore the people of God from their sin. And ultimately, because we're now on the other side of the Christ event, we know who that Messiah is. We know what his name was. We know where he was born. We know who his mother was. We know who his earthly father was. And that is none other than Jesus Christ himself. So it's a wonderful encouragement to us. 
So let's, let's join in, in together in Micah chapter five. I wanna start with verse one. And the lesson essentially in verse one is that when earthly kings fail, the heavenly king disciplines nations. When earthly kings fail, the heavenly king disciplines nations. So this is the, the nature of the first verse in chapter five, verse one. The Bible says, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. With a rod, they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now I understand we're sort of entering into this book halfway through, but the basic context here is the people of God had rebelled against him. They were his covenantal people. They were supposed to know better. The theocratic king was supposed to represent the purposes of God. They were supposed to be living under God's law. They should have known better. They should have acted differently than the nations around them, but they had failed. And so God comes to his covenantal people, to Israel, and he says to them, I'm gonna send an enemy to destroy you and take you into captivity. Because the theocratic king had failed to uphold God's law, God intended to send enemies to punish Israel. And it actually happened in the 8th century, in the 700s, Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, would come and he would plunder Jerusalem. What's the significance of Jerusalem in biblical thought? It's the capital of Israel. It's the place where the temple stood. It's essentially the place where believers would conceive of God's presence manifesting itself on earth like the sharp point of a pencil. God is everywhere. He's omnipresent but God would manifest his presence in a, in a sharp way, in a pointed way, in a special way in Jerusalem, within Israel. And yet because these people who had experienced so much blessing and grace and mercy from God had rebelled against him, God permitted Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, who was the superpower at the time, to ransack Israel. And so what's going on here? is that Mike is prophesying, he's basically taunting Israel, saying, okay, get your troops together, form up your armies, bring out the weapons, but you're going to lose. Because the Assyrians are going to lay siege against you. And then we have this interesting statement, with the rod, they will strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. The judge of Israel is another word for the king of Israel. Remember back in the judges before there were actual kings? There were people called judges like Samson and Ehud and Deborah. People that would just sort of rise up among the people. They weren't necessarily appointed to official office, but they governed the people. So this, this word is sometimes used as a substitute for king. And Micah prophesies that because of the rebellion of God's people, even though the troops will gather, they will be unable to defend themselves. The king of Israel, the judge of Israel himself, will be unable to defend himself. The king who was supposed to embody God's law, but who had failed. The king who was supposed to be a light to the nations, but who had failed, would be humiliated by his captor by being struck on the cheek with a rod. And the lesson here is this, brothers and sisters, God is not afraid 
to humiliate those who fail to uphold his sovereign rule over all of life. That's the lesson. God is not afraid to humiliate you, me, his church, the nation of Israel of old. If we've been appointed to represent him and we fail, God will judge us. This is what happens to God's people when they rebel, and it often happens to nations as a whole. We, we don't always like to, to, to speak of judgment, do we? In fact, you can go to some churches, they'll never talk of judgment. You'll never hear the word damnation. You'll never hear the word hell. You'll never hear the word discipline, and you'll never hear the word judgment. Those are off the list. But the Bible speaks of these things. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, it says, But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. So this is not a passage about the discipline of God's own, but it is a passage among many passages that talk about God's willingness to judge those that rebel against him. God is loving, but he's not a pushover. God cares for you, but he doesn't have a problem disciplining you. Even in our own country, if his people who are called by his name, the Christian church, fail to uphold his word, fail to live by his principles, fail to acknowledge that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, judgment is inevitable. It's inevitable. Look back in history, name one nation from this point in time back to the beginning of time that is still in existence that has rebelled against God. There's not a single one on planet earth. They might last for a thousand years. They may last for 250 years, but God always has his way. But in spite of the judgment that God is pronouncing upon Israel and by extension upon any who rebel against him, for the faithful, there is hope in judgment. For the faithful, if you're among the faithful, and I trust you are, there is hope in judgment. For the wayward, there is fear. But for the faithful, there is hope in judgment. And so even in judgment, there is a savior. So that the rest of the, the, this first cluster of verses, we're gonna study six of them, is essentially reminding us of that. Even in the midst of judgment, there is hope. So again, you, you put yourself about 700 and some odd years before Christ and you know, things are falling apart around you and, and you hear this word of judgment, but beyond the judgment, over top of the judgment, God promises hope. Here we are in 2021 and God is judging our nation and God is judging the world. And we don't like that necessarily. God may be disciplining us for our unfaithfulness, but beyond the discipline after the judgment is over, those that love the Lord, for those that love the Lord, there is hope. And that hope has been secured by the Lord Jesus Christ. The old covenant people looked forward to it. We look, we look back on his accomplished work, but at the end of the day, it's all about Jesus. Jesus is the center of history. So the second verse says, but you, so the word but, in contrast to what we've just read, in contrast to judgment and woe, now we have hope. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, 
who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old from ancient days. So there's several interesting things here. We have a reference to Bethlehem. Now, everybody knows Bethlehem. Bethlehem means the house of bread. You know where Jesus was born, in Bethlehem. If you go to Israel today, you might want to visit Bethlehem. I, I've been to Israel. I didn't visit Bethlehem when I was there in 2010 because at the time it was a little bit dangerous. It's an Islamic-controlled town. But most people have heard of Bethlehem. But back in, in this time, Bethlehem was just a little backwater, piddly little town that people didn't think much about. Now, keep in mind this biblical principle. There's no throwaway lines in the Bible. So if we have details given to us in the Bible, they're there for a reason. So why, as the writer is about to point people to hope, does he say, mention Bethlehem, and, and then say, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah? Why, why when I think of Bethlehem, do I, do I need to think small, obscure, insignificant? Why is the writer pushing my mind in that direction? What, what does it matter how, how big or small Bethlehem is? So we need to answer that question in a moment. And then he talks about someone that's going to come from this town who will be ruler, not a ruler, but will be ruler in Israel. He's going to come. So he's pointing forward but at the same time, he's coming forth from of old, from ancient days. So he's not yet here, but he's already here. Some sort of a figure is going to come, but this figure has actually already been around for millennia. So it's tipping us off. This is an unusual kind of person. Well, what's happening here is that in contrast to royal Jerusalem, the place where the temple stood, the place where the Assyrians were going to lay their siege works and attack, the place where the armies were going to gather. When you think Jerusalem, you think strength, capital city. You think fortifications. In contrast to this place of human strength and human ingenuity and human military power, the humble messianic king will come from a little insignificant village in Israel. Now, just to kind of set some perspective on this, the Roman historian Tacitus estimates that at the time of Christ, there were about 600,000 people living in Jerusalem. I think there's about 800,000 today, but there's about 600,000 people living in Jerusalem. By contrast, historians estimate that the population of Bethlehem could have been as low as about 300. That's like pack at corners. Now, have you ever traveled the world and people are like, oh, where are you from? I'm from Canada. Oh, where in Canada? You don't say Windsor, Packet Corners, McGregor, Stony Point, Amherstburg, Harrow. Nobody knows, nobody knows where those places are. You say, oh, we're, we're about three hours from Toronto. Oh, I've heard of Toronto. Because when people think of countries, they're like, oh, are you from Montreal? 
are you from Toronto? Are you from Vancouver? They, they don't really know anything in between. Because when we think of power, we think of the capital cities. The Olympic Games is never going to be hosted in Packet Corners, Ontario. Right? And even if we built a big stadium there and we hosted an Olympic game, they'd still say, it's in Toronto. <laughs> Why? Because in our mind, population equals power. When invading armies come, they attack the big cities. They don't attack the little villages. If they can conquer the big cities, they've got the nation by the, by the throat. But typical of the Bible, this is really important, typical of the Bible, the less impressive the person, the smaller the town, the lower you are in birth order, the more fertility issues your mom had trying to birth you, the more likely you are to be used of by God in his redemptive story. God always picks the underdog. He always picks the humble. He always picks the, the son that was born second or third or fourth. He always focuses on the family whose mom could almost not have any children. He, he always goes to the, the, the little place, the obscure place, the obscure nation, the obscure town. Why? This is part of the gospel. In our weakness, God is strong. Deliberately, Jesus was born by God's sovereign plan in a small, obscure place to highlight the fact that his kingship was not of this world. It wasn't because he was born in, in the royal capital. It wasn't because he was born of significant parents. He was essentially a nobody. Because the gospel fundamentally is about his kingship, his heavenly kingship. And so the less kingly the person from a human perspective, the more likely they will be to represent the true king. And so here, the prophet Micah prophesies that a Bethlehemite king of all things will come forth to rule the people of God. Who could this be? Jesus. Who could this be? It can only be Jesus. So we have this prophetic pronouncement pointing us to Christ and his work. So now we're going to learn a little bit more about who this person is and the work that they're going to accomplish for us. And it's intended to encourage us. So again, against the backdrop of pending destruction. So 722, the Assyrians come in and successfully conquer Israel. Now, now we have a waiting period and pointing forward several centuries, the writer then prophesies, first of all, about his birth. And there's some significant things about his birth for us to consider. Verse three says, therefore, he shall give them up until the time, meaning God is gonna give Israel over to judgment, until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. This would be a prophetic pointing forward to Mary. And then this interesting statement, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. So for a time, God will permit his people to be judged. Now, if I say to you, okay, brother or sister, 
you're living in sin or we as a church are living in sin and God is going to judge us for a period of time. How long would you endure that judgment before you started to ask questions like, has God abandoned us? Does God actually love us? Has God forgotten us? What would be your maximum amount of time that you would be prepared to endure judgment before you're like, okay, God, I've learned my lesson. Could you please make all things right? Would it be 22 months? Would it be five years? Would it be a couple generations? How about one, two, three, four, five, six? How about 700 years? See, if you study biblical history, the judgment that God was going to bring upon his people lasted for 700 years from the time of this prophecy until the time when the son was born. They would have to endure the invasion of the Assyrians. Then the southern tribes would have to endure the invasion of the Babylonians. Then they were put under the mixed rule of the Medo-Persian kingdom. And then when they sort of dropped in power, well, then the Greeks rose up. They had to endure the Hellenization of the Greeks. And then when they sort of petered out, then they had to endure the rise of the Roman Empire. So to come the time of Christ, you all know, they were now under the power, the world was essentially under the superpower of the Romans. So they had to endure not only Sennacherib, the Assyrian, but the various Babylonian rulers, the Medo-Persian rulers, the Greek rulers, the Roman rulers. And and come the time of Christ, you would think there wouldn't be a religious person left in the land, that they would have simply concluded, well, God's abandoned us. But God's timing is not the same as ours. And, And it very well could be, if Jesus doesn't come back real soon, that our nation, that the people of God and our own country might be subject to several centuries of judgment if we have been unfaithful to God. God's timing is not our timing. You look at the world around us, we're not under the rule of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, or the Romans. But we are under the fascists and the statists and the secularists and the atheists and the humanists. And they're pretty tough stuff right now. They got a lot of power and control and they don't seem to be willing to relent to any of it. And the question is, are we going to be infected by their poison or will we remain firm and steadfast knowing that even if God permits us to suffer for several generations, that in the end, we know who the winner is. We know what Christ has ultimately accomplished. We know how the the end of the story is written. Well, back to the seventh century, as they looked forward to God's redemption, he points them ultimately to the birth of Christ. And when he says, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. I think what he's saying there is that When Christ comes back, there will be a remnant of otherwise dispersed believers, whether they were dragged off into Babylon or Assyria or had fallen prey to the invading forces of the Romans. At the end of the day, a faithful remnant will always come back, gather together and worship the true King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This might even be a 
spiritual allusion to the ingathering of the, the Gentiles who would become part of the people of God and form the Christian church. And we see hints of that even in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection because Christ is, is put to death. He is resurrected from the grave. Christianity is not particularly popular. It's really not legal. But we see hints of that faithful remnant even when the, when the disciples, the apostles met in secret 50 days later in the Pentecost event. So even in persecution, even in judgment, even in trial, even in tribulation, the people of God are gathered, the people of God gathered illegally and God continued to build them up and to nourish them and the spirit of God descended upon them and continued to use them even though it was never easy. It was never easy. It never became easy for 300 more years until the time of Constantine. So essentially, from the time of Micah until the time when Christianity finally had a little bit of a reprieve was a millennia, 700 years before Christ and about 350 years after Christ before finally it had a certain measure of public acceptability. And since then, it's gone like this, depending on what country you're in. Sometimes it's popular, sometimes it's not so popular, but Jesus' birth really is the hinge point, the focus, the zenith of God's redemptive plan. And when Christ comes, we learn secondly about his shepherding care. Verse four, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God, and they shall dwell secure, that is the people of God, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Look at the language here that's used to describe this future messianic ruler. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock. The word shepherd is a positive word. It speaks of care. It speaks of kindness. It speaks of selflessness. You don't use the word shepherd and apply it to a tyrant. Tyrants don't shepherd their people. Tyrants dictate, tyrants abuse, tyrants destroy. There's no correlation between a shepherd and a dictator. But if you have a benevolent king, then you can say he's a shepherd king. And that's the imagery that we get of Christ. Christ is king, but he's a shepherding king. He's a benevolent king. He's a kind king. He's a merciful king. And he shepherds his flock in the strength of the Lord. And because he's shepherding his flock in the strength of the Lord, the people of God have security. And over time, his reputation is spread to the ends of the earth through the proclamation of the gospel and the faithful ministry of the Christian church being true to the great commission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So we see here, a reference to Jesus shepherding care and his kingdom expanding to the end of the earth. And then this is really, really important. Just just six six words, the beginning of verse five. This is reminding us of his peace. And he shall be their peace. Notice the specifics of the language here. It doesn't say in this text that he will fix their problems. It says, he shall be their peace. When I went running to my daddy as a little boy who'd been stung by yellow jackets, my daddy didn't pull out 
a little magic wand and wave it over me and all the pain went away. But in his presence, even when I was still hurting, there was some relief. A lot of times Christians have this notion that if they go to Jesus and they pray enough, that God will wave his wand and he will fix their problems. He will take the cancer away. It's gone. He will repair their relationships. The divorce has been solved. Your spouse is no longer leaving you. The economic hardship, just wave his wand, it's going to be gone. Because we have this notion, if we go to Jesus, he's kind of like a genie. Rub the bottle, he pops out, what's your three wishes? And he just fixes everything. And I mean, isn't that kind of how it works? I mean, how would it even be possible to have peace while I'm still in pain? That's our, that's our mindset as Westerners. It's not even possible to have peace unless the problem's been fixed. But that's not true of scripture. Sometimes God admittedly does fix our problems. He raises the dead, he heals the blind. But even if he does not, he is peace. In the presence of Christ, there is peace. He doesn't always fix it, but he is always present in it. And it's in his presence that there is peace that surpasses human understanding. It doesn't even make sense to lost people most of the time. But in his presence, there is peace. I've told this story before, long, long time ago. I have a brother who's disabled. He actually just moved to Amherstburg. You might see him around the church once in a while. He might even be here today, I don't know. But he's disabled. He was in a car accident when he was 15. And I remember when we were in the hospital 20 some odd years ago and we're like, it was touch and go. Is he gonna survive? Is he not gonna survive? And in that process, you think a lot about life. You know, your little brother's on life support. He's, he's almost dead. Two of his friends were killed in a car accident. And people come in and they're like, why? Why would God allow this? Why, why, why? They're looking for an answer. They're looking for a fix. And people are praying and you have these people come in some of them a little off the wall and they're like, you know, we're going to lay hands on him and he's going he's to be up on his feet tomorrow. Because their mindset was, well, if God is sovereign, God has to fix the problem. And he has to fix it right now. He has to do a miracle right now or he's not God. And then others, well, if God doesn't answer our questions, then he's not God. But what I learned in that is a lesson I've been retaught over and over and over again. You don't necessarily find the answer to your question, why? I have no idea why it happened. 25 years later, I don't know, but I know what God has done through it. And I know that if you just trust in the Lord and you find peace in his presence, that the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I know that. And I know many of you know it because I can hear it. I can hear the, the agreement in your voices. You know what I'm talking about because Christ is our peace. So as we look at the world around us, let's make this super applicable. We look at the world around us yeah, we would like the problems of our culture and world to be fixed, but we don't need them to be fixed in order to be faithful. We don't need the problems to go away in order to remain firm in our faith. We don't need to get our jobs back. We don't, we don't need to have freedom to worship. We don't need for our gatherings to be legalized. We, we don't need for viral threats to disappear. We don't, we don't need that. It'd be nice if they 
we're gone. And we're going to pray to that end and work to that end in the, in the human order. But if we have Jesus, we have enough. We really do. If we have Jesus, we have enough. Because in his presence, there is perspective and peace. We have his promises. We have his presence. We have the hope of eternal life. And so finally, we're pushed further as we, as we think about, we've talked about his birth, his shepherding care, his peace, and then finally, his victory. This is his pending victory. Again, they had to wait for it, but the rest of the verse, verse five says, when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword. <laughs> Meaning they're going to go and wage battle against God's enemies. In the land of Nimrod, this is a reference to Babylonia, which would be the next superpower they'd have to deal with. At its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Border is kind of a significant word for a people under the old covenant perceived of land boundaries and blessings and nationhood as God's choice expression of covenantal faithfulness. You'll notice that it speaks of shepherds and princes, seven shepherds and eight princes. What's that referring to? It's an idiom. It's an idiom. Seven is often a number of perfection. So when you have seven and you plus one it, then you have super perfection. So what, what's going on here is that God is prophesying to his people that even in the face of attack, the messianic ruler will come and he will use his choice servants, leaders, prophets of old, apostles under the new covenant, pastors, elders, church leaders today. It's an idiom. It's idiomatic of faithful leaders. The theocratic king failed. The Pharisees failed. The Pope fails. The bishops fail. Pastors and clergymen fail. But in the midst of all that, God will always raise up leadership, a sufficient number of leadership, referred to here idiomatically as shepherds and princes, that will remain faithful to the Lord and represent his purposes and principles in a lost, dying, and dark world. In other words, Christ is going to work, but Christ is also going to use faithful men and women in his redemptive plan to bring light and hope to the nations. Will you be one of them? Will you be one of them? Are you prepared to be used of by God? To lead and guide and direct your marriage, your family, the people of God toward worship of the true shepherd king, the Lord Jesus Christ. From this passage, Jesus or as a result of this passage, Jesus will fulfill the prophecies of Micah chapter five for Israel in the first century. And he will continue to do that into the present. So let me leave you with four statements and four questions. These are all by way of review. 
What are the lessons we can learn? Four lessons and four questions. The four lessons are, number one, there will always be a remnant of people that are faithful to the Lord. The question is, will you be among the remnant? The second statement is, Christ will always care for his people. The question is, will you therefore trust him to care for you? The third is, he is our peace. So the question is, will you draw close to him and trust him to be enough for you in this life? As you wait for the fullness of life that God has in store for us in his eternal kingdom. And the fourth statement is, in the end, he wins. He will be victorious over the Assyrians, over the Babylonians, over the Medo-Persians, over the Greeks, over the Romans, over the statists, over the fascists, over the tyrants. In the end, he will win. And the question for you then is, will you be among his faithful followers to bring him honor and glory? Christmas is wonderful. It's a great opportunity to meet with family and friends and to enjoy good food and maybe put on some weight. And we often focus on all of that. But more importantly, the Christmas event is rooted in history. And it points us to the future. And it contains within it, within Christ, within the birth of Christ, hope and freedom and liberty for the nations. There's, there's great wonder in this event. And so we have this great opportunity to worship him and to reflect upon these truths and to put them into practice so that our own faith lives might be re-energized for the honor and glory of God.